This is episode 89 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, An Employee-Centric Culture. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm really honored to welcome a new guest to the show. I met Sherry Stewart Deutschman uh, through her book, which is coming out next week, called Lunch with Lucy, and I thought it was really charming. So I'm very pleased to have her on the show. I'll introduce her. She's a serial entrepreneur, author, and passionate advocate for entrepreneurship. She's just founded a new company, which we'll talk about at the end. Prior to doing that, she was the founder and CEO of a company called Letter Logic Inc., which is a company that she grew to $40 million and sold in 2016. And Letter Logic was named an Inc. 5000 company, which means it was one of the fastest growing privately held businesses in the U.S. for 10 consecutive years. She attributes the success of Letter Logic to its unique culture in which the needs of the employees came before those even of the customer or shareholders. And that culture led her to be recognized by Ernst & Young as one of their 2009 entrepreneurial winning women. And Letter Logic was also featured in the New York Times, Forbes Magazine, Business Leaders, Inc., and Fast Company. She was honored by President Barack Obama as a White House champion of change in 2016. Welcome to the show, Sherry. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm happy to be with you. All right. So the subtitle of your book, Lunch with Lucy, is Maximize Profits by Investing in Your People. And tell us what experiences you had that led you to think that was the right approach for your company. Well, I was working for another company in the industry, and we just had constant problems, uh, so much so that I believe that I was a professional apologist instead of the VP of sales. <laughs> we would sell one account and lose an account. You know, it was oh. a constant thing. I, I felt like I was uh, just constantly groveling uh, to customers to keep their business and putting out fires. And uh, it occurred to me that, you know, most of our problems were simple human error. Mm. And the problems were happening because um, my coworkers didn't care. Mm. And then I came to believe that they didn't care because nobody cared about them. Mm-hmm. And so when, when I started my company competing with that company, um, which got me sued. Oh, did it? Oh, I didn't remember that part. I, I determined that I didn't want to be like them. I, I wanted it so that everybody that worked with me had a vested interest in the success And so I determined to start the company with an employee first culture that would make every person feel like they were an owner and that would uh, cause them to really to have a seriously vested interest in in the outcomes. 
It's reminding me of that movie Office Space, which I'm going to have an episode about here pretty soon. But I think there's one point at which one of the employees is explaining to a couple of consultants. It, he's in a he's in a transfixed state, so he's being brutally honest, and he says something like, "You know, why would I work any harder? I mean, it, it makes you know more productivity for my company, but why would I care? You know, why would that be?" something that I would want to do. And it's such an obvious point, um, but somehow we don't talk about that. That just set mine up uniquely to incentivize them to care, which I hopefully we'll get to talk about uh, later as, as we talk this morning. Yeah, good. So I have a couple of questions here that were really, I think, about your experiences before you started your own company. One of them was about your IT infrastructure and the problems that you had with that. Yeah, well, we had a lone IT guru who created the platform. And as soon as I started selling, it was like every customer that I approached said yes. Oh. And so we grew too rapidly. Mm-hmm. We did not have the IT infrastructure or the help to support our growth. And it got to where he was having to sleep at work. Sometimes his kids, to see him, they would have to come to work with him and sleep on the floor in his office because he couldn't leave the company long enough to get a good night's sleep. Oh, that's terrible. And it was absolutely an unsustainable um, way of life. And eventually, he just walked out one day. He quit. Oh, yeah. So, you know, he really uh, left us in in a lurch because not only had he not uh, kept notes about the code that he had written for what he was doing. you know, he had band-aided everything together for the last several weeks just to keep everything going. And so we lost a lot of our business, uh, probably a third of our business in the weeks following his departure. Wow. What a tough lesson to learn. I mean, better to learn it early than later, but wow, what a what a tough startup problem. It was. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book was the specificity of your descriptions about what your company actually did. So tell us how you came to have a company that was involved in printing bills and then also the problem with returned mail. So I was working for this company that printed and mailed hospital bills only. And uh, so when I started competing with them, I determined to do the same thing, go after just that uh, one market. In order to compete with them, I knew I had to have something really special, you know, some market differentiator. And I wasn't just competing against them. I was competing against huge companies. Uh, WebMD at the time was my biggest competitor. Oh, wow. Hard to compete with them from your basement unless you've got something really special. Mm. A a lot of people will tell you when you're starting a business to solve some huge problem, to find some enormous solution to a big problem and to go big. I didn't do that. I chose a problem that was a nagging problem problem that caused ripple effects within a hospital. And I chose to tackle that problem. And so um, I I contacted hospital prospects and said, if I could solve that return mail problem, could I have your business? And they said, well, how would you solve it? And I said, I'll take all of your addresses before I print and mail this, the statement to the hospital, to the patient, I will research their addresses, find a good address and I will guarantee the delivery to the patient or your money back. So the first hospital I called with that offering said, well, that's the quintessential no-brainer, of course. Oh, yeah, interesting. And so I solved a seemingly tiny problem 
And because nobody else was tackling that, it really opened the door for me to get a foothold in that industry. Yeah, it's, I really like, as I say, the how specific it is. Sometimes when people talk about new startups, they don't, they're not as forthright as you were in your book. So I really enjoyed that a lot. And one of the tactics that you used to draw people out was this idea of lunch with Lucy, which is the title of your book, um, which I thought was really charming. So tell me how that idea came about and what it was. It came about with, you know, I had a, a, a routine practice to have lunch with employees as often as I could. But on the way to one of those lunches one day, I noticed the woman that I was taking. She was new to our, our, our IT department. I noticed that she was shaking. And so I said, hey, are you okay? And she said, yes, I, I've, I've never been to lunch with a CEO before. Mm. And I'm afraid that I'll do or say something wrong. So um, I had to remind her that I had the title CEO because I started the business and could call myself anything I wanted to call myself. Uh-huh. And, and that I was actually in awe of her and her education and, and her brilliance and uh, so I realized that I needed to spend more time getting to know the employees and removing that barrier of making going to lunch with the CEO. So I started regular habit of lunch with Lucy on Wednesdays where I wasn't Sherry, the CEO. On Wednesdays, I was just Lucy, a coworker, and any of the employees could ask me to lunch and they would choose the restaurant and they would choose whoever else might be with us at the table mm. and they would choose the topic of conversation. Often it was just the two of us, but sometimes um, they wanted to bring somebody they were dating for me to check out. Oh, how fun. Well, um, one time uh, a young man said, my mom wants to meet you. She's moving to Hawaii and she wants to meet you before she leaves. And, uh, the lunch got changed to a dinner and ended up with uh, like eight or 10 of us at a, at a dinner table and a huge bar tab. Oh, right. But his mom was able to move to Hawaii shortly thereafter with the, the assurance that uh, her son was in good hands and he was in the same place. But it became the most important time that I spent in my company because I got to hear about the hopes and dreams of the employees and quickly came to the realization that none of them ever dreamed about working for a printing and mailing company. Right. It was just, you know, a way to pay to support their families. But I got to hear about what they thought I was doing wrong as a leader, um, what equipment they needed, um, the things that I was doing that caused hardship, or sometimes just tiny little changes that we could make that would make their jobs and their lives easier. Hmm. And so I just chose that time, Wednesdays, to just go with them and listen. And you can't imagine how much I learned about my company and about my coworkers from those lunches. Um, I think it became the most important time I spent each week in my business. It's really, uh, it's just music to my ears, as my listeners would know. I was always amazed how when you sat down and talked with employees at all levels of the organization, what wisdom you would uncover. You know, people really think seriously about the company and what would make their jobs better and make us more 
productive and better places. It's it's really incredible. And yet, uh, most regrettably, it's often our leaders that aren't very interested in what employees have to say. I think it's such a loss. It is because they are actually doing the work. They're in the trenches. They know where the problems lie and uh, they know the solutions better than we do. Mm -hmm. Often that's what I found was that they really had very great suggestions if we would just listen. You know, but it it also created empathy because I got to hear sometimes uh, some pretty sad stories about unique challenges that the employees were facing at home. So they might leave a happy environment at work, but they were going home to, you know, hell. And so it helped me have more empathy for them um, just, just by learning more about their personal situations. And it, and it sometimes gave me insight into little things that we could do to solve those problems for them at home. Yeah. When you talk about your employees, it's, it's obvious how much you care about them in the book and how you have recognized them as, as human fellow human beings. I really enjoyed that part. I love them. Um, and they love me. It's, it's uh, three and a half years since I sold the company and yet not a day goes by that I don't have interaction with um, at least one of them. Uh, today already there have been three. Wow. <laughs> you know, a text, an email. Um, we we uh, are still very close. Yeah, lots of lessons to be learned there, I think. You also show a lot of humility in your book. Um, in one case, you were talking about finding it difficult to be direct with people. That was something that you had to learn. So you uh, ended up hanging a sign up in your office. So tell me about that. Yeah, I actually wrote it on a big whiteboard. Um, always, always be direct because I felt like it just didn't serve anyone well for me to to skirt around an issue. You know, uh, in the early days, I would bring someone in to talk about a problem. Uh, some poor performance, and I felt so bad about it. Mm-hmm. I would water it down so much and hug them as they left that they didn't know if they'd been scolded or praised. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can relate. Yeah, so it didn't really help anybody. And so I just started writing those words on my whiteboard every day. Um, always, always be direct. You know, studied it before I called somebody in for one of those tough conversations and found it was absolutely the best and most loving, most empathetic thing to do. You know, for years there's been the suggestion that you do this uh, a sandwich of giving someone praise, a little criticism, and then praise. And I think most people see right through that. And so they don't hear the praise because they're anticipating the correction. And it's just best if you go straight to the point and say, you know, have a problem with this and and discuss it. Yeah, I think often that anticipation while you're waiting for the ax to fall or, you know, whatever terrible thing is going to come down on you is is really uncomfortable for both parties as as both of you are distracted by that that the fact that that's coming, right? Somehow there has to be a better way for us to not make it so transparent that that yeah, I'm saying all this stuff, but there's going to be a big but at the end of it. <laughs> all right, so I can imagine um, some skeptics out there listening to us, uh, wondering what the concrete examples were for how you felt that your investment in your employees paid off. So, can you give them some examples? Yeah, I mean the 
first one that always comes to mind is Southwest Airlines. In fact, when I was uh, just starting the company, I'd read the book Nuts about um, how Herb Kelleher started Southwest Airlines with the belief that if he took great care of the flight attendants and, and the pilots, that they would be happy and that then they would have fun at work and the passengers would see that and enjoy flying with them and then pay Southwest Airlines uh, dividends by uh, continuing to be loyal to them and, you know, building a loyal customer base. And we all know how that that's worked out for Southwest Airlines. They've been outrageously successful. But then sometimes people will tell me when I'm speaking about this, that it only works for small companies. And that's just not true. Um, companies like Costco, uh, Starbucks all have employee-centric cultures and they're outrageously successful. There is um, a great example, if you want to do some research, uh, about Scripps Healthcare in Southern California. Tons of problems, so much so that they were in danger of losing their charter. California has really strict rules about the ratio of patients to nursing staff, and they couldn't keep nurses. Mm. So they were constantly in, in danger of losing their charter when they got a new CEO, and the CEO said, I'm going to focus right now on the employees. So he sent out a survey to determine the level of satisfaction with employees. And only about 27% of the employees thought that Scripps was a good place to work. And so he set about to take care of them and uh, to stop the loss of the nursing staff. And it worked. And the turnaround was very quick by focusing on the staff and uh, they came out way ahead, became outrageously successful financially. Also had uh, great employee satisfaction scores. Uh, I think they increased it to about 85%. Mm. They've been listed every year since as one of the best hospitals in the nation. So it's a huge public example about which there have been articles, many articles written about their turnaround and their success by focusing on a number of things, but especially taking care of the staff first. Well, it's interesting. They're right in my backyard. I go to Scripps. I'm in San Diego. So yeah, we're surrounded by Scripps buildings here. And I think my whole family goes to Scripps. I didn't realize that they had had that interesting history. I should look that up. I think Chris Van Gorder was the CEO who took it over and, and uh, did such a dramatic turnaround. And how about for you, for Letter Logic? What do you think how do you think your investments paid off? We, you know, even competing against those Goliaths I mentioned already, we were able to grow enough to be on that Inc. 5000 list for 10 straight years. And we were the most expensive in the industry. Oh, interesting. Uh, we ended up with uh, the last couple of years with a 97 net promoter score, which is absolutely unheard of. A couple of years before I sold the company, I, I gave pretty significant price increases to all of our clients with the realization that I was going to lose some, mm -hmm. not a single client left. Oh, wow. They thought we were worth it. And interesting aside, our uh, sales team was at first a little embarrassed by, uh, I would go with them on a sales call and tell the pr prospective buyer that... I wanted their business, but that I did not believe the customer came first, that I believed my employees came first. And however, that I would take such good care of my employees that they in turn would take great care 
of the client. And these prospective clients started nodding. They got it. And pretty quickly, the sales team changed their attitude about having me go along and, and tell that story because our culture became um, the number one impetus behind their sales. In fact, they said 85% of their sales were culture sales. The clients signed with us because they saw how the culture would affect them positively. It's such a compelling story to me. And I think, again, a lesson that I wish was more widely understood, that people want to do business with people who are engaged in ethical treatment of their workers. I, I do profoundly believe that. But I can imagine your sales team, the first time you opened your mouth to say that, they're like, wait, stop, this isn't the script. <laughs> All right. So uh, one of the things that was also interesting in your book was about the organizational chart. And so uh, tell us how you tried to design that at the beginning. Well, early on, I didn't need an org chart. You know, there were just a handful of us and you know, we could shout across the room and speak to one another, and um, it was it was pretty flat. Mm -hmm. As we grew and started getting a lot more attention, I realized that we needed an org chart, and so we created the traditional org chart that had me at the top, and then the senior leadership next, and then all the people that reported to them next. And when I had that done, I almost threw up when I looked at the bottom of the list and saw somebody that I considered one of our most valuable players. And it just seemed wrong to mm -hmm. have at the bottom of the list, like he was less important. And so I um, you know, crafted a org chart that was more like a wheel. Mm -hmm. He is, you know, the, the hub and then all these folks that go out. Um, and I think of it like a, you know, a bicycle tower that if, you know, it's got to be fully inflated and, and those spokes going all the way around the wheel for the wheel to, to roll and, and everybody's crucial. Or another way to look at it is it a set of gears. You know, if one gear isn't uh, working, then nothing works. Everything gets stopped. And so just created a, an org chart that really paid homage to how important everyone was regardless of their role. Yeah, I think it's a, I, I think that can uh, send a really big message to have something down on paper that looks like that. I've always been a big fan of organizational charts in terms of clarifying decision-making and power. But it is often, I think you're right, misinterpreted as somehow also meaning importance. And there's something wrong with that. that that's not quite right. You're right. And, you know, I tried to tackle that That wrong belief that those, you know, people uh, at the bottom of that chart were less important through our profit share program. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. So we had a very unique profit share program. There are lots of profit shares um, programs in the world, but ours was very unique. I've never heard of anyone doing anything quite like it. No, me neither. <laughs> Every month we took 10% of the net profit. Well, first, let me back up a little bit. We had a monthly meeting where we gathered all of the employees together in one room and we shared the financials from the previous month. So, you know, first an open book policy so they could see exactly how much money we took in and how much money went to the bottom line. And then we could talk about the results. And we talked because it was monthly, we could draw a 
a direct line between their actions, our actions collectively, and the results. Mm-hmm. And so go back to your question earlier with some, in, some people saying, why should I care how well the company does? Mm-hmm. Because we took that bottom line, took 10% of the net profit and split it evenly at that meeting and handed out checks, physical checks for everyone with exactly the same dollar amount. So we showed that our custodian was just as important as our CFO, mm-hmm. who was just as important as the head of IT because we all got exactly the same dollar amount in our share of the profits. And that was a magically effective way to put everybody on the same level and to have us uh, woven together very tightly in an organization that, uh, you know, all working together toward the same goal to make that bottom line as big and fat as we could make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are so many things that I love about that. One is just your willingness to open your books up, which is unusual for a private company. Usually, you know, the employees don't don't know what's happening in the real financials. The other thing I like is that since it's monthly, in fact, you talk about this quite in the quite a bit in the book to the problems with having profit share plans that are only yearly. It's just too long, you know, it's too long to wait. And when it's monthly like that, you're much more agile, right? You can respond more quickly to things that have gone wrong. And I, I can imagine, I, I love to imagine what those meetings were like and the kind of specifics that you must've gotten into, like, oh, you know, the, Profits were down this month because remember we had this accident with what you know equipment breaking or I'm putting words in your mouth here but but I, exactly it, right. go ahead tell us no you're exactly right I mean we because it, it happened in the previous thirty days we could remember exactly mm-hmm. right so if if we had a really great month and you know we were firing on all cylinders then the results were there we could see it. And when we had, you know, screwed up a big job and had to offer uh, a refund to a client, it affected the bottom line. And we knew exactly why. And without pointing fingers, we knew exactly where the problems started. And we knew how to take corrective action so we could get back on track the next month. Um, Having it monthly is really crucial. Too often, I mean, most of the profit share programs are annual. And it becomes just like an entitlement. Yes, that's a problem also. Mm Mm-hmm. And so doing it monthly and evenly really created an environment that made people make better decisions. Yeah. And I think, you know, you get a lot of the benefits of having an employee owned company without having it be employee owned, which, you know, has its own set of hurdles. But yeah, I, I thought it was really quite brilliant. Sherry, tell me how you would handle it when it would be it would sort of become obvious in the meeting that one person had done something that, that had caused the profit to be lower. Like how did you keep the environment from turning nasty so that there weren't people muttering, well, you know, if so-and-so had done their job, yada, yada. And I I don't think that ever happened because in our, in our industry or in our business, there were so many fail safes. So interesting. Made a problem and it, it wasn't caught by other people. It was all of our problems. It wasn't. Um, and, and I think we created, you know, as I mentioned, just such a tightly woven group that there wasn't the finger pointing. We were all there just to help each other. Really? Yeah. So part of that culture. Yeah. An interesting byproduct of this, uh, you know, flat profit share plan 
was that our employees did not recommend or, or refer friends of theirs who they didn't think were top notch to the team. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Next to them that was absolutely earning that fair share. Uh huh. Did you ever tr- have trouble recruiting or was it fairly easy to recruit people? It was very easy. You know, oh. We had a, a waiting list always of people who wanted to join our company because friends and family, and we got a lot of press and we, we generally had our pick from the cream of the crop. I see. Yeah, it does sound like a nice place to work for sure. So you started off by offering really generous health insurance benefits. And this topic is particularly interesting to me. I did an episode last week about the history of employer-provided health insurance, which is kind of a weird phenomenon in the United States. Um, but you started out with a very generous plan and then had to step back from that. So, so tell us what all was going on there. Well, I started from day one where we, the company would pay for 100% of everybody's medical, dental, disability, and life insurance, and all of that for their family members, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was expensive, but it seemed to me to you know, to be the right thing to do. I you know, remembered when I was a single mom and um, my daughter got hurt on the playground, cut her foot. I didn't have insurance. I didn't have a credit card. I had no money. And so I waited almost too long before I went to the emergency room and to find out she had a pretty significant staph infection and she mm. lost her leg or her life had I waited much longer. And so I thought if I'm going to have my own company, I'm going to make sure that none of my employees ever have to live through something like that. So we were paying for all of it when an employee, a single man, came to me and said, I know that Suzanne there has five kids and she's married to her insurance has to cost you a lot more than I cost the company. And so um, I want you to write me a check every month for the difference between what you spend on her family and what you spend on me, because that's only fair. It was shocking. Um, I was angry and really disturbed. Um, You know, he, he said it was, you know, just wrong the way I was doing it. So I talked to our attorney and he said, you know, you might have some liability there. Um, And so I did, you know, made a really tough choice and went to paying just for the employees and having them pay for their families. It was um, the only fair, equitable way that I could come up with a a solution. It was um, sad. And, um, got rid of him shortly thereafter really because I felt like he didn't really buy into our unique culture of, of uh, empathy and, and caring for one another. Yeah. It sounds as though he was, it wasn't quite on the same page as uh, other people in the company or at least you to it's interesting. I know the psychologists tell us that when people perceive things to not be fair they have, you know, really kind of outsized reactions to things. Sounds like he just kind of worked himself up into a snit over it. I was a little disappointed in your attorney, I have to say, for not having a little bit more of a backbone about that. And here in California, I think we're so worried always about litigation that we, in my experience in, as a CFO, as we would often be counseled by our, our attorneys, they just sort of, you know, turn white and start shaking if anybody threatened us with a lawsuit. And sometimes I felt like 
well, you know, maybe sometimes our attorney's reaction ought to be, yeah, you want to sue me? Go ahead. <laughs> and when I read your story, I felt like, shoot, you know, it was such a creative and and warm-hearted approach to this trouble that people have with health insurance. I was really disappointed, but we tried to look up for it in other ways. You know, some of the policies we put into effect after that was, um, which would have been much to his chagrin, probably, uh, was to bring, uh, allow the employees to bring their kids and their pets to work whenever they needed to. Oh, yeah, that's right. Tell us about that. I'd forgotten to to, uh, bring that up. So, um, you know, if, if, if a kid has a runny nose, they're not allowed to go to daycare. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the parent needs to be at work um, because they don't get paid if they're not at work. And we certainly needed them there to to perform their duties. And so unless the kid was really sick, we said, just bring them on in. And we all took turns helping take care of the kids. Uh, when we had snow days, uh, which is not that common in Nashville, Tennessee. But when we did, uh, it was like a zoo. Uh, everybody brought their kids, and most of the kids hung out in my office. Um, <laughs> I've been hitting the head with Nerf balls, and uh, <laughs> I had my office totally destroyed by these kids. But it enabled their parents to come to work and uh, be earning a living and, you know, and knowing that their kids were, were safe and happy. Yeah, it's one of the things that I, there was one particular team that I worked on, which was really an excellent team, really an A team. It was an A team, although I think all of us were kind of B players. And so I often think about why that team was so good. And one of the things that was noticeable about it was that we all knew each other's families. Mm -hmm. That really seemed to be a bonding effect for all of us. And you've talked about that in your book, too. Yeah, it really makes you see uh, a, a, an, an individual differently when you see how they interact with their family. Mm-hmm. It makes you have a much greater appreciation for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely builds empathy and love, really. It does. You also talk about fair pay and how, uh, I think you your quote is, low wages affect us all. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, you know, in Tennessee, the the minimum wage is $7 and 25 cents an hour. And uh, we probably could have uh, gotten away with paying 10 or $12 an hour as our starting pay. You know, we basically half of our workers were factory workers, mm-hmm. but we looked at it this way to determine what was a fair living wage. If the two lowest paid employees at letter logic started dating and got married on their joint salaries, in what neighborhood could they afford to live? Um, could they afford to buy a home? Would it be a safe neighborhood? Would it be a neighborhood that their kids would be safe in? <laughs> could they afford to have kids? Right. Could, could they afford a real vacation? And with all of that criteria in mind, we set our minimum starting wage uh, back then at $16 an hour. And I think in Nashville right now, that probably wouldn't be enough. It'd probably have to be something more like $18 an hour now. But that was a really good way for us to to, uh, gauge whether or not we were paying enough. And, you know, I argue that fair wages do affect us all because you only have to go to uh, some of the places that pay minimum wage um, to see the kind of service that you get. And, And my belief is that even huge companies like 
uh, like Walmart, for instance, which is known for paying low wages. I think that even the Waltons would make a whole lot more money if they paid a fair living wage to their employees because they could get the same amount of work done with a lot less people because their people would be more fully engaged and giving fully of themselves. Does that make sense? It does. I was thinking that I almost can't imagine a company that's more the polar opposite of your company than Walmart. (laughs) 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 Just in terms of, I don't know, culture and attitude towards your employees. One of the things that worries me when I'm out in the world and interacting with people who are making so little money is, you know, they're really vulnerable. They're really on the edge of catastrophe. And I think that affects them in a lot of ways, not just their work, but their attitude to life. And it's very nerve wracking to see people who are so exposed. And sadly, um, you know, great, great percentage of our society is living just paycheck to paycheck. And, um, you know, it's just a layoff away from homelessness. Right. Yeah. It's, it's nerve wracking. It, it affects the health. And, you know, I, I remember when I first moved to Nashville as a single mom, not having enough money and just really counting out my pennies, um, hoping that I had enough money just to buy gas to get home. And, uh, you know, I didn't have, uh, had so little money, really stretched very thin. And so often I had to, to go without electricity to be able to pay for daycare. And, um, and then I couldn't focus on my job. Mm-hmm. Great care, do a great work for my employer because I, I couldn't focus. I, I couldn't concentrate because I was so filled with worry and fear. Yeah, I haven't given you a chance to kind of tell the story about what happened to you. So you moved to Nashville as a single mom, and then you were working. Tell us where you were working and how it came to be that you started your own company. Well, when I first moved to Nashville, I, I worked. Uh, for a car dealership selling cars uh, because I had the ugliest car in the world and it was on its last legs. And so I, I'd heard that, you know, I could get a free demo to drive and didn't need a, a college degree to, to get a, a job there. And I, I moved to Nashville as, you know, uh, to pursue a career in music, had only a high school education, but I ended up working for a company um, in exactly the same field that I'm in now. And I went from making so little money that I couldn't keep the lights on to making a really good living. I was making six figures and starting to save money. And um, when the company started experiencing such growth pains that, you know, we started losing customers and I had to, um, you know, once I realized that, that my boss wasn't really going to listen to me and affect change, um, it was easy for me to make the decision to quit that job and, and start my company competing with him. Oh, okay, I see. That's how that came about then. So you you kind of made it in the traditional world and then decided that you didn't like the way that company was run and set out to have a different kind of company. Very exactly. interesting. Exactly. I, I had, in a way, had my own company before. Um, you know, I cleaned houses for mm-hmm. people, and I, my sister and I had a route where we cleaned service station uh, bathrooms. I had done that, but I had never really considered this the big entrepreneurial world and uh, really pursuing it the way I ultimately did. Yeah, when you're hiring people and making 
writing employee handbooks and all the things that go with that. So to go back to your book a bit, um, one of the, like I said, one of the things I really liked about it was so down to earth and really refreshing for these kinds of books now in this space about entrepreneurship and starting your own company. So was that on purpose? Was that deliberate to write that kind of book or was that just a natural outcome of your own personality and style? Well, I, I guess it's both. Um, but I wanted the reader to be able to, because the book ultimately is about empathy as a leadership trait, mm-hmm. I wanted the readers to be able to feel empathy for the people that I was talking about and for the situations. I wanted them to be able to place themselves there and um, think about how that culture might affect their behavior there. So I guess it was a little of both. Yeah, I think it was very effective. And what are your hopes for the book and uh, what kind of impact do you hope it has? I hope that uh, it will be read by lots of business owners and wannabe entrepreneurs and HR directors that start thinking about employee first culture as a really successful business model. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that my company was successful, not in spite of all the crazy things we did for our employees, but because of it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping just to infect readers uh, with the idea, with some ideas of, you know, ways to improve their culture and thus improving their profitability. So um, I would hope that entrepreneurial groups nationwide read the book and invite me to speak so I can share a little more of the details in person. Um, that's, That's what I'm hoping will happen as a result of the book. And, and that, um, that entrepreneurs will think about doing at least the three things that I think are most impactful uh, because it impacts society, which is listening to their employees, being transparent with the employees, and then sharing the profits. Mm-hmm. And really having, I think we have the ability, but also the responsibility to better the lives of our employees. And I think those three steps are uh, really important in that journey. Well, I hope it has that kind of impact as well. Let's see. So uh, now you've sold Letter Logic, and uh, here's where I want to talk about your new undertaking. Um, so you've started a company called Brain Trust. Yes. And tell us about that and what's, what your goals are for that company. Well, as I was growing my business, I was a member of uh, two organizations, peer-to-peer um, memberships. One was EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization, of which I'm still a member, and then WPO, the Women's Presidents Organization. And both of those have put you together in small groups of other entrepreneurs, and you get together once a month to talk about serious issues in growing your business. And through experience sharing only, uh, we help each other through those problems. And I felt it so beneficial to me, uh, really pivotal to our success. And yet, um, the criteria is you have to have a million in revenue and you have to own at least 50% of your business to be a member of either one of those organizations. The problem with that is that there are over 12 million women-owned businesses in the U.S. and less than 2% of them ever make it to a million. Wow. That's a small number. Yeah, I think less than 5% of men make it. We're around 5% of men, male-owned businesses get there. 
So that leaves this huge area of growth potential for these women if they just had you know, a sounding board to bring their problems to. So I started Brain Trust for those women to give them access to the experiences of several other women. We put the women together in groups of a, a maximum of eight women per group. Uh, just to be the game changer that they need to give them the impetus to grow. And it might be that their goals are just to get their business from a quarter million to half a million. Mm -hmm. But this group will help them do that. And then, I, you know, our, our goal is to get them to a million and beyond. And I, there's nothing really scientific about the million-dollar mark. But in general, it's easy to see that once you get to a million in revenue, you're more likely to have um, be paying yourself a decent salary. Uh -huh. You probably have uh, several employees at that point, so you can start working on the business instead of in the business. Mm -hmm. at, at a million in revenue, you've got some credibility, and so it's easier to get a line of credit from the bank or to get an investor. An investor is going to look at you much more seriously if you're revenue positive and you've got a million in revenue. And importantly, at that point, you can join these other organizations right. that get a million in revenue. So uh, I excitedly started uh, Brain Trust and have uh, four groups going, and uh, we are perfecting it here in Nashville for the next year. And in September, we'll launch in several other U.S. cities with a goal to being national and then global with this um, solution. How exciting. Are you familiar with an organization called Hub? I'm not. You might want to check them out. They started here in San Diego. They're really a cooperative working space, but they also have some uh, a, a branch that has to do with funding. Um, but I, it just occurred to me now as I was listening to you speak that, yeah, you might be uh, interested in partnering with them. I'm quite familiar with uh, the work that they do and have always been a big fan. But yeah, you might want to check them out. I, I, they might have a, a franchise in Nashville. I can't remember where all they are now. They're not, they're not all over the country or anything, but they do have some other places besides San Diego. I will look it up. Those co-working spaces for women are, are really a great idea. Love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems to be quite effective. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for the work that you do. And I enjoyed reading the book. And I wonder if you'd like to uh, share anything with the listeners about where they could learn more about Brain Trust or anything else you'd like to tell them about. Certainly. Um, you can buy my book um, on Amazon uh, now. It's Lunch with Lucy. And uh, March 10th, you'll be able to buy it in most airport bookstores in the nation and at Barnes and & Noble. And uh, you can reach me on uh, Facebook um, at Sherry Stewart D. And on Instagram at Sherry dot stewart dot d and on twitter i'm sherry stewart d um you can on linkedin also sherry deutschman so i would love to hear from anybody with their their questions and comments and and hope you'll read my book and be inspired to make some changes in your own businesses that's great thank you so much thank you jennifer That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. In keeping with the new year, we'll be changing our format somewhat as the show has evolved. We'll continue to address work-related problems, but in our second year, 
We'll be going beyond just an advice show to talk about work trends, labor laws, economics, interesting companies, as well as pranks, bad bosses, and more screw-ups at work. If you have a question about a work-related issue or a comment about the show, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website discreetguide.com. That's D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. And at that website, you can also sign up for The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month, and get information about training programs, books, consulting sessions, articles, jokes, and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces. And thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday and sometimes Friday. Tune in so you can hear more about trouble at work.